Amen. Thank you, Brother Dave, Miss Beth, Brother Phil. Boy, we had it all this night. We had children's choir. We had Brother Phil, were you 86? Is that right? 87? Man, praise the Lord. And then Dave and Beth somewhere in the middle. All right. Go ahead and get in your Bible, if you would, to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. As probably most of you know, on Sunday nights we have been uh, working through a 14-message uh, series that I planned months ago on random subjects, just going from a bunch of sermon ideas card that I'm always uh, writing stuff on and packing away. And last Sunday night we talked about being remembered for good. I mean, all of us will be remembered by some people, but none of us will be remembered like we want to be remembered. We will all be remembered how people choose to remember us. In fact, we took a look at Absalom's life, and we learned that uh, during his life, he erected a pillar so that he would not be forgotten. Uh, and as we reminded ourselves, uh, no one, uh, very few have heard of Absalom's pillar. Nobody even has any idea where it is. But we do remember Absalom, just not the way he wanted to be remembered. We remember Absalom for how he actually lived. And uh, we challenged and encouraged one another to be faithful to Christ our whole life because when we stay close to Jesus, uh, we will inevitably leave good memories uh, instead of bad ones. And we challenged and encouraged one another to live honorably because it's easier for people to remember us well when we live honorably. We challenged and encouraged one another to live a busy, constructive life, but not hurried. And to stop telling ourselves that this or that area of our life don't really matter. Uh, none of us can live perfectly. Uh, Christ is the only one who ever, ever lived perfectly. But all of us, by the grace of God, can live a sincere, faithful life as a follower uh, of Jesus. Tonight, I would like to, like to talk about some things the Holy Spirit pleads with us to do. For those of you who are more familiar with the Scriptures, you have heard that the law of Moses has 613 commandments. Uh, you can look those up online. They're easy enough uh, to find. And we really understand that those 613 commandments are just the details of the 10 uh, basic moral commandments that God gave Moses written in stone with the finger of God. And then Jesus, of course, we know, summarized those 10 commandments with two even more basic commandments, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength and thy neighbor as thyself. Uh, if you've been here any length of time, you've heard me say that multiple times. Uh, far fewer are familiar that some have counted the commandments in the New Testament, and they have a list of 1,050 commandments in the New Testament. You can look it up. I printed them out. I mean, we might take an issue with this or, or that, but without question. There are hundreds and hundreds of New Testament commandments that are given to us as disciples of Jesus. Uh, to read about all those Old Testament commandments and New Testament commandments it makes me glad that I'm saved by grace, not keeping commandments. It makes me glad that I'm kept by the power of God, not by keeping commandments. Um, and though we are saved by grace, and though we're kept by grace, a lot of people fail to recognize that though we are no longer to re responsible to keep the letter of the law, we are responsible to keep the spirit of the law. 
And the spirit of the law is actually a higher standard than keeping the letter of the law because keeping the spirit of the law also involves our heart rather than just what we do or don't do. Now, I do not believe uh, Jesus intended us to memorize a thousand New Testament commandments and 613 Old Testament commandments in the Mosaic law, but I do believe that we, if we will love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our mind and all our soul and our strength, and that if we will seek to love our neighbors as ourselves, and that if we will seek to love our brothers and sisters in Christ like Christ loved us, I believe you could not write all the commandments that would be involved in that. You couldn't write them all. Our creator is the ultimate authority. And so because he's a creator, he has the authority to make as many or few commandments as he sees fit. The Holy Spirit commands believers in 1 Peter 5, 8 to be sober and to be vigilant. Jesus commanded his disciples to be merciful like our heavenly father is merciful in Luke 6, 36. The Holy Spirit commands aged men to be sound in the faith and young women to love their husbands in Titus 2. Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another like he loved us in John 13, 34. The Holy Spirit commands us not to be thoughtful and to follow the right kind of leaders in Hebrews 6, 12. I'm glad we're saved by grace. But there are plenty of things that God has clearly commanded believers who are living under grace. He has commanded us to do some things. Which brings up an interesting question. Why, when God has given us so many both New Testament and Old Testament commandments, why does he beseech us to do some things instead of commanding us? Did you know there are 20 things in the New Testament that God beseeches us to do? To beseech is to ask urgently, to implore or entreat. It means to beg, to earnestly desire something. I mean, think about it. I mean, why the emotional appeal associated with these 20 things? Why not just command us to do these instead of beseech us? Are these 20 things more difficult or more important? Are they less important and less commonly done, and so therefore he beseeches us instead of commands us? Do these 20 things require more heart and therefore he appealed to our heart and besought us instead of commanding us, which is more of something that's linked with our mind? I mean, why the emotional appeal with these 20 things? Why not just command us? Honestly, I don't think I have all those answers, but I do know this. There are some things in the New Testament that as believers God has besought us to do. It's an interesting thing. Jesus never besought anybody to do anything. You study those words, beseech, besought. There were people that besought Jesus, people uh, that beseeched Jesus for this or that. Jesus never besought anybody to do anything. He commanded people to do a lot of things. In fact, when he commanded evil spirits and the devil himself, they immediately obeyed his commands. Uh, Jesus had a kind of authority that even Peter and Paul did not have. He was the creator clothed in flesh. 
But that still gets us back to this basic issue. Why? And what sorts of things does the Holy Spirit beseech us to do instead of commanding us to do like he did so many other things? It's a good question. If you're able to stand tonight, if you would stand, please, in honor of the Word of God. The title of my thought tonight is Besought by the Holy Spirit. Besought by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 12, in verse 1, we read these words, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Thank you. you might be seated. We clearly read there that Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, besought believers in Rome to do a couple of things. The first thing he besought them to do in verse 1 was to present their bodies a living sacrifice. By the way, that is not a martyr's death. It's a believer's way of living. To present our bodies a living sacrifice. It was a part of being a living sacrifice uh, to live a holy life. That's what he says there. To be holy means to be set apart to God. To be holy means to be clean and pure. Uh, it's part of living a sacrificial life, to live a life that's acceptable unto God. By the way, there are a lot of things that are acceptable in our culture and acceptable to people that are not acceptable to God. And he beseeches us to be a living sacrifice as a follower of Jesus, to live a holy life and to live in a life that's acceptable to God. In fact, Paul considered this, uh, it says, to be your reasonable service. Th this is not something that God expected for those he had called in a special way to stand up to go to the mission field or preach or teach his gospel. You, you, you know, listen, this is written to the believers in the city of Rome. And for everyone who is a believer in Jesus, it is your reasonable service. And the word behind that is the word uh, that our word logic comes from. It is the logical conclusion of what Jesus has done for us. It is a reasonable thing for you and I to live this sacrificial life, and he beseeches us to do that. But he also beseeches us in verse 2 to not be conformed to this world, but to instead be transformed by changing our thinking. In verse 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, when we think about conformity, uh, water conforms to the shape of whatever container you place it in. You and I, as believers in Jesus, we are not supposed to conform to the shape of the ungodly culture in which we have been placed. Uh, there's, it's probably accurate that there are some people here tonight or somewhere within the sound of my voice, and when you're with Christian people, you conform your life to be Christian. And unfortunately, when you walk away from an environment like this, you, like water, take the shape of whatever environment into which you're placed. No, I get it. In your workplace, you don't have to be singing, Oh, how I love Jesus, when your boss says, I want you to finish that paperwork. I get it. You, you don't need to say, well, let's bow our heads and pray when your boss says, hey, go sweep that floor. Uh, but the thing of it is, is that it is reasonable and we are besought by our God to not be conformed to this world, but we are rather instead to be transformed, to be changed. In fact, he tells us how we are transformed. And notice it is by the renewing of your mind. 
There is a way that if you are a believer in Jesus, you and I are supposed to think. We have a fallen nature, and there's a part of our mind that's fallen. We're not supposed to yield to that part of our mind. There is a way that our culture thinks, a godless culture, and you and I are not supposed to think like that. We're supposed to renew our mind. God gave us a heart to feel. He gave us a mind to think, and we are supposed to be using both of them. And the way we are transformed is by renewing our mind to have our thinking be what God wants our thinking to be because in doing so, notice we prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. By the way, if you're ever trying to memorize this verse, think of the word gap. What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Uh, Listen, when you and I live for Christ, we're proving something to the people around us. Listen, anybody can say they're a believer. Anybody can say that Jesus is in their, height, uh, in their heart, but it is the proof that people see in the way we live. And he uses good, acceptable, and perfect. Listen, there are some things that are okay to God, but not good. There are some things that are good to God, but not best. And then there are some things that are the perfect will of God that are the best things that God wants in each situation. By the way, when we love God, we try to do the best. You know, a lot of people ask the wrong question. You know, when your question is not based in love for God, you ask questions like, why do I have to do that? When your question and thinking is not based on, uh, oh, how I love Jesus, you ask, uh, will that anger God? Listen, when your uh, questions are rooted in the love of God, your questions are different. Your questions are, what pleases you most, Lord? Lord, what do you prefer from my, uh, my, from my life? And when we have transformed our thinking, then we demonstrate and prove God's will in these situations. It's interesting that he begins this whole section with, I beseech you, therefore. He begs with us, he pleads with us, he implores us to do that. Why? I mean, look. If, if we look at verses 9, he's going to, we'll read a, a big section of verses. I want you to notice all the commands in, in this. Uh, chapter 12, verse 9, let love be without dissimulation. Here's a command, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. It's actually two. Here's another one, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring another. Here's another one, not slothful in business. Here's another one, fervent in spirit. Here's another one, serving the Lord. Here's another one, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, consenting instant in prayer. And and we could go down all the way to 21 and and command after command after command that are given to us as followers of Jesus. Why (laughs) just in the, uh, a few verses away from feeling no obligation to, to command, why does he beseech us? Why does he beseech us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God? Why the emotional appeal? Why not just command us to do that? I mean, he commanded us to abhor evil and not be slothful in business. Why beg us to present our bodies a living sacrifice? Why command us to rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation, but beseech us to live holy lives that are acceptable to God instead of acceptable to our world? Why command us not to avenge ourselves and provide things honest in the sight of all mind? all men, and beseech us not to be conformed to the world, but instead live transformed lives. Why? Uh, Honestly, I don't really know. 
You know what I think? I think it's actually a polite way of telling them to do something. Oh, by the way, if you're a leader of any sort, you should be a servant leader. And just because you have authority to do something, it does not mean that you need to always tell people to do things in the harshest manner. In fact, I really think if you're a parent or you're a boss or you're a ministry leader, I, I think you ought to say, well, would you please do this? Now, I think we should all understand that if our boss says, hey, would you please take out the garbage, that means take out the garbage. And they're just being respectful and polite, like, like we should be as human beings. And even more so as a follower of Jesus. Uh, and I, I think more than anything, it's not like Paul is suggesting, well, do this if you like, don't do it if you like. I think he's just being polite and kind and, and saying, you know, listen, I beseech you to do these things. I don't think anybody knows why we're commanded to do things and some things and beg to do others. Uh, listen, it's not like living a sacrificial life is hard and not avenging ourselves is easy. They're both hard. It's not like conforming to this world is hard and blessing them that persecute you is easy. They're both hard. Maybe this an emotional appeal adds weight to the importance of what he's asking. Maybe the emotional people, uh, appeal is important because living sacrificially and transforming the world, uh, maybe it's especially rare. And so he beseeches us to do that. This much I know for certain, it is our reasonable service, mine and yours. In other words, you can reason and come up with this conclusion for God to ask us to live sacrificially for Christ as believers. The Holy Spirit is appealing to our heart. Listen, God chose this time for us. I get weary of people whining all the time about how bad it is. If you or I would have done better in 1941 when it was better, uh, God would have placed us then. We're chosen for this day. And God is appealing to our hearts just like he was appealing to the hearts of the Roman believers. Hey, don't be conformed to this world. Everybody here understands we live in a day and age when most churches purposely conform to the world to reach the world. They purposely do that as a method. That is an unbiblical method. We are to be, instead of conformed to the world, we are supposed to be transformed from the world and conformed to Christ. He's appealing to our hearts. Listen. It's not easy living a sacrificial life. Every part of our fallen nature, yours and mine, doesn't want to live sacrificially for anybody but myself. But if you've been saved, let me ask you, are you living a sacrificial life for Christ? Are you purposely living a life that's been transformed? Or if you're just being honest, are you pretty much, you just conform to wherever you are? something wrong with that. God appeals to our heart to not live like that. If you're saved, would you describe your life as being holy? H-O-L-Y. Set apart, clean, pure. Uh, listen, nobody lives a perfectly holy life, but if your life isn't more holy than it was a couple years ago, something's wrong. 
If the things you watch in television and the kind of music you listen to with ungodly lyrics sung by devilish people, if you are not more holy than you were a couple of years ago, something's wrong. And God appeals to our heart to live better for Christ's sake. And if you're here tonight and you're not saved, can I just say, it's a great night to get saved. It's a great night to believe in the Lord Jesus, to call upon Him to forgive and save you. Uh, and I make the same emotional appeal to you tonight that Paul made to the believers in Rome. I beseech you to do these things for Christ's glory and your own good. But it's not just that Paul besought believers in Rome to live sacrificially, transformed by Christ, instead of conformed to the world. Turn up a couple pages to Romans chapter 15. I don't know. It's a pretty interesting study. Just if you have a computer software, software, just do a New Testament search of the word uh, beseech you. There's 20 things. Th hundreds of commandments, maybe a thousand in the New Testament. But 20 things were besought. I mean, why? It's, it's just super interesting. Uh, notice, uh, secondly, Paul besought believers in Rome to strive with him in prayer for him. <laughs> Romans 15, verse 30. It says these words, it says, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may del be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may uh, with you be refreshed. Uh, <laughs> Now, it probably in this case, might have been a little awkward for Paul to command these believers to pray for him. And so instead of commanding them to pray for him, he begs them, he pleads with them, he implores them, I beseech you, brethren, and in the end of verse 30, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Listen, Paul had no issue in commanding the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians 5.25. He said, pray for us. It's a command. The author of Hebrews, I think is Paul, might not have been Paul, we'll find out someday, doesn't matter. Uh, but listen, in Hebrews 13, 8, uh, they commanded the people who were the recipients of that, letters to, that letter to, quote, pray for us. Must have been to Paul, it was crossing a line to command believers to pray for him, so he begged and he pleaded with them to do so. See, Paul understood something that you and I often lose sight, ago, uh, sight of, and that's the fact that prayer changes things. And prayer brings the power of God to bear in any situation where you and I, as a believer in Jesus Christ, can get a hold of God through Christ. And Paul was begging for the kind of prayer that was fervent enough to be considered striving together. Did you catch that at the end of verse 30? That ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. We learn in verse 31 that he was headed to Jerusalem and he wanted them to strive in prayer that he would be delivered from those who did not believe and that God would give him an open door that the financial gift he was bringing to them would be accepted of the believers in Jerusalem. He's pretty specific when he said pray for me fervently. We learn in verse 32 that he also wanted them, he wrote this from Corinth, and he, so he says, hey, listen, uh, pray that when I go to Rome, 
that it will be with joy and I'll be in God's will. That's, that's what he does in verse 31 and 32. 32, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may with you be refreshed. By the way, Paul did make it to Rome eventually. Uh, the first time it was as a prisoner on house arrest for two years. Uh, the second time it was as a prisoner with a death sentence over his head in the Mamertine prison. Now I doubt that's what Paul had in mind when he asked them to pray that his trip to Rome would be by the will of God. <laughs> but I hope you've grown enough to understand that God's will in our life sometimes isn't really what we have in mind. It's just better. Please hear me when I say these simple words. Praying for one another is one of the most important things we do as brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you have a prayer list? Who's on it? I love it when someone texts me or sends me a little email and just says, hey, I'm praying for you. I say, why do you love it? Because I need prayer. I need it in my personal life. I need it in ministry. I need it in my marriage. I need it in my family. Hey, listen, if you're here and you have in any way just stepped up and says, you know what, I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to teach. I'm going to lead some ministry. I'm going to do something. Understand, you're a target. And Satan has a plan for everybody like that for their destruction. He has a plan for the destruction of every one of my family members. Every morning when I pray, I pray a hedge of grace around my family. Do, do you grasp the hatred our spiritual adversary has for you? See, if we grasp his hatred for us, we wouldn't be so careless in our marriage. We wouldn't be so careless in our parenting. We wouldn't be so careless in our walk with God. We, we, we act like he's like this little dude in a red suit with a pitchfork. He is an absolute hater of anyone and anything God loves. And our only hope is prayer. Listen, I, I need God. I need his touch in my mind and my heart. Listen, I cannot understand the scriptures in my own intellect. When I meet with people, I don't know what to say to them in my own strength and wisdom when they're having conflict. When someone is struggling and they're hurting, I don't know what to say to comfort them. Listen, I need God. I need God as a husband. I need God as a grandfather. I need God as a, a parent. I, I need God as a friend. I need God in so many ways. And these, are, these needs, they ought to cause us to be fervently praying for ourselves. But it also ought to cause us to say, hey, let's strive together in our prayers to God for one another. You pray fervently for me and for our spiritual leaders here. Are the names of your deacons and their wives, are they in your prayer list? Are the names of each of the teachers for your children in Sunday school, master club, and children's church, are they on your prayer list? Do you, do you pray for our staff? Do you pray for our wives? Listen, our spiritual adversary is greater than 
any one of us and all of us combined. And our only hope is God. Uh, by the way, Paul was willing to command them to do other things. Look at chapter 16 as it begins. He says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Cancrea, that ye receive her in the Lord as become a saint, that you assist her in whatever business she hath need of you, for she, she hath been a succorer of many, and of myself also. Listen, he's, not, he's fine to command them to receive her. He's fine to command them to assist her, but he beseeches people to pray for him. Striving together in prayer. Do you pray like that? This is an emotional appeal that you and I would do more than just mouth a couple of words. Listen, if you've been saved, do you actively pray for me and those who are trying to provide spiritual leadership here? I mean, actively do that. And if you're not saved, tonight's a great night to be saved. It's a great night to humble yourself, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive him, to call upon him. And so I make the same emotional appeal to every believer here tonight. I beseech you to pray for me and for all those who lead and help you and this church in any way. But it's not just that Paul besought the believers in Rome to fervently pray for him instead of commanding them to do so. Uh, chapter 16, turn up to verse 17. Here's the third thing. Here's number three, Paul besought believers in Rome to mark and separate from believers teaching doctrine different than Paul taught. Verse 17 of Romans 16, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. By the way, before we go on, you read any modern church growth books and growth church things written by modern gurus, and they will say one of two things or both. They will say, number one, uh, doctrine doesn't matter. Or if they say doctrine matters, they will say that only doctrines that are uh, linked to the gospel and salvation matter. Both of those are lies. Sounds really good. Hey, listen, what thoughtful person doesn't wish that there was less fragmentation amongst believing people. Uh, listen, if you have any heart, any brain at all, you wish we, we, we were more together. But understand that our unity is not ever going to be good, nor will it ever be something that pleases God if we surrender doctrine for the sake of unity. Now, I don't know what you think. When I think about things like this, uh, we didn't read verse 17, 18, I'm sorry. Uh, it says, for they that are such, uh, in other words, those that are teaching doctrines uh, and causing division and offenses, contrary to the doctrine Paul taught them. Uh, he says, for they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus, but their own belly. In other words, they're doing it for their own interests. And notice their method, by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. Uh, don't expect those uh, who are, teaching false doctrine to do what you saw me do this morning where you just get loud and you have a vein pop out in your forehead and you say listen if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus you're going to hell yeah, you know that that's no that, that's not good words and fair speeches and I didn't do that if you weren't here but I felt like it um, good words and fair speeches and notice who they deceive the hearts of the simple by the way that doesn't mean low IQ 
what that means is spiritually immature. Probably, since you're here on a Sunday night, you have a good idea of what you believe. I think we would all be shocked that if I passed out uh, pieces of paper and pens and asked you to tell me why from the Bible you believe things, I think we would have a lot of blank sheets. And if you only know what and you do not know why, understand that you are vulnerable to false doctrine. And in light of that, Paul doesn't, listen, of all the things that, in my way of thinking, that you would command something to do, it would be to stick with sound doctrine. Because doctrine is an issue of mind. It's a thought process. It's belief. It's reasoning. It's logic. But, but he doesn't do that. There are a lot of commands regarding doctrine. In Timothy, Paul told uh, Timothy when he was pastoring the church of Ephesus, he said, command them, charge them that they, quote, teach no other doctrine. In 1 Timothy 3, 3. Uh, in 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul commanded Timothy to give attendance, to give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Of all the things in my own mind that he would command rather than beseech, it would be linked to doctrine. But he says, I beseech you that you would mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine that you would learn and you would avoid them. Why is that an issue of heart? Maybe Paul was moved by all the harm done to people by false doctrine. Now listen, if I said lift your hand, if you've known someone over the years who got sucked in by someone with good words and fair speeches away from sound doctrine, every hand would go up, my hand would be up. Maybe he besought them and made it an issue of heart because some of the people who needed to be marked for teaching doctrine contrary to what they had learned were family and friends. You know, it's one thing here on a Sunday night where probably there's a pretty large uh, degree of agreement on what the Bible teaches and, and doesn't teach. It's one thing to be in here and say amen and, and, uh, and yeah, that's right. Listen, it's another thing when we're away from here and it's our family and friends. And so it is an issue of heart. And so rather than pretend like doctrine doesn't matter, he says, listen, mark them and avoid them. Paul told the Thessalonian believers to withdraw yourselves, quote, from every brother that walketh disorderly, and then he defined disorderly as refusing to work and being a busybody. Can I just say, refusing to work and being a busybody has nothing to do with the gospel or salvation. And what you read in a lot of books sounds good, but it's not consistent with the scriptures. Paul makes marking and separating from believers causing divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine they learn. He makes it an issue of a heart. He beseeches them. I cannot emphasize enough how important it is for you to decide who you trust. You've heard me say this to you over and over and over again. Trust people you know. Don't trust preachers you don't personally know. Don't trust book authors that you don't personally know. Don't trust blogs 
Listen, you know what a lot of those blogs are that a lot of you moms, they're just mom shaming. You're very blessed at Bible Baptist Church. There are all kinds of people here who have for decades heard and learned and embraced sound doctrine. You know their end. You know how they treat their spouse. You know how they handle their children. You know whether they're kind. You, you, you know them. That's your security net. Uh, listen, you will not have to go very far before you find someone who can present truth way more eloquently than I can. And by the way, there are plenty of people who present lies way more eloquently than I present truth. And so listen, I, I beseech you. I, I've lived not long enough. Uh, uh, this Easter, I'll have been saved 40 years. I was saved as a 24-year-old man after, after school. And I'm sad to report to you that over the years, I've known a lot of people who I thought would never leave sound doctrine to leave. You know, in most every case, and maybe in every case, do you know how it all started? They listened to good words and fair speeches of people who taught them something different than people they know who lived godly lives taught them. All over this room are people here, and you learn sound doctrine from a godly parent, a godly grandparent, some preacher that you had in the past, some Bible teacher, some Sunday school teacher. There are people here, you've never been in any church but Bible Baptist Church, and you've learned sound doctrine from me and other men and ladies here who teach and uh, do all kinds of things. Listen, please, I, I just uh, I plead with you, I beseech you. Instead of assuming you're strong enough to listen to anything, Instead of assuming that you can hang out in a room of skunks and still smell like a rose, I instead, I beseech you to mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Please, for your future's sake, the future of your children and grandchildren, Listen, our forefathers and foremothers, they were not idiots when it comes to how uh, uh, the church. They, they were not idiots when it comes to worship. They, they were not idiots when they, they taught that the Christian life is a cross, not a casual sit in your jeans on a stool. Discipleship in the Bible is rigorous not careless. And I plead with you, don't be taken in by all the good speeches and nice words of people who make those people before us to be idiots. Please, I beseech you, you quietly stand. You bow your head.